Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, as I said before, um, I'm one of those people who, until we started talking about doing a show about Marie Kondo, did not know who Marie Kondo is or was or is. Uh, I now know she is, uh, well, it depends on who you talk to, but she certainly is uh, an advocate uh, bordering on a guru uh, of tidying up, of, of the life-changing magic of tidying up, to pick a title from one of her books. Uh, and she is a Netflix series, and she is somebody who trains other people to train you how to tidy up your environment. And she is a phenomenon. She is a media phenomenon. We're going to talk a lot about that today. A little bit later, you will hear from a professional organizer who is a certified Con Marie consultant. Con Marie is the sort of that's the, the Marie Kondo way, so to speak. We'll also talk about uh, talk to two people who um, who attempted to implement uh, these principles, these ideas in her own life. But we're going to begin with the perfect guide to anything, any new arrival or a fairly new arrival in popular culture, and that is Linda Holmes, host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. Her first novel, Evie Drake Starts Over, about love and things, uh, sad things, baseball, and the state of Maine will be published in June. Oh, that sounds like a good novel. Um, it's got everything I like in it. Uh, so Linda Holmes, um, I've done my fumbling best to describe Marie Kondo, but uh, I, I'm sure I'm failing in some way or leaving things out. I don't know. Uh, what would you want people to know uh, about her as they approach her as a phenomenon? Uh, the best thing that I can say about Marie Kondo in terms of trying to explain her method is that I think she really wants people to change the relationship that they have with all the stuff that they own. So the thing that you'll hear the most about her is that she wants you to get rid of the things that you own that don't, as she puts it, spark joy. And the whole idea is if you have a bunch of clothes, you probably only really like a small amount of it. She says, just own that stuff and get rid of all the other stuff. And when you buy stuff in the future, only buy stuff that you really, really like. So she's trying to, I think, particularly with, um, there's some appeal to Americans who tend to own a lot of relatively um, disposable stuff um, that they buy inexpensively and then they get rid of and they don't that much care about it. She wants you to really treasure your possessions, which means culling out the ones that you don't care about and being careful what you purchase in the future. Right. She has all these categories involving clothing is where she always starts. But then eventually eventually we get into stuff like books and things in your garage and things in your kitchen uh, and things in your bathroom and then things to which you are also sentimentally uh, attached. But let's uh, hear a little bit of what it sounds like on the Netflix series. This would be from episode six, Breaking Free from a Mountain of Stuff, which could be the title of actually all of the episodes. If we can get this whole garage organized more, then they'll be in a place where they can access them easier. Once you do your magic. <laughs> I want to clean up my stuff, but I feel like I'm not getting there. So for me, what I've really wrapped my head around in, in my life is if I'm not doing the things that I need to do, then you know, go seek out experts that can help you make the change that you need. 
コンマリメソッドっていうのはただの家を清理するための。私のマジックっていうのはたくさんあるんですけど。You mentioned my magic, and I'm sorry to say that I don't use any magic. Only you can do that. だけれども本当にその自分の人生を変えたい自分の人生を変えたい。So, if you're a little confused、uh, by the voices there,、um, Marie Kondo, although she does speak some English,、uh, she has moved from Japan to California. For the most part, on her show, she speaks only in Japanese and、uh, is translated by、uh, an interpreter.、Um, and, you know, Linda Holmes, I feel like this, that's not an insignificant thing. I feel as though. If some lady named Gladys or some guy named Earl showed up and spoke and was, you know, your basic、uh, American saying all this stuff, it just wouldn't quite have <laughs> quite as much weight. There's something about the sort of, there's a Mr. Miyagi quality. I don't know if I'm being horribly racist in saying this, but I think there's a sense that this is wisdom that's coming from someplace else. So it's probably better than our homespun wisdom. Uh, I will agree with you in the sense that I think there, I think you're right that there is a Mr. Miyagi quality. And I think you're also right that that's a little bit of a, a racial trope that's very regrettable. I do think American popular culture has had a tendency to see、um, Asian people as sort of mystics and things like that. And I definitely think there's. There's a little bit of that in the way some people receive her. She is, you know, a very kind of cheerful, excited person. She is、um, a, an Asian woman who is small in stature, and American popular culture has a, had a tendency to kind of treat people like that as if they are sprites in a way,、um, or as I said, mystics.、Um, so I think you're probably right that it affects the way she's received. Um, and I, but I think if you, if you boil it down, it, it comes down to the fact that what she really is, is she is a self help person who is comfortable talking about how do you feel about the things that you're trying to change. I don't think every professional organizer people have seen on television is really willing to get at your emotional attachments to your stuff. Like, How do you feel about owning all these old clothes? How do you feel about owning you know, a bunch of things that belonged to your parents and, and that kind of thing? I think that's where her、uh, real strengths lie.、Um, it seems like、uh, another part of her strength, and once again, maybe a, a part of her strength that's a little bit more palatable. I, I even think the intervention of the interpreter, if somebody came in here and said to me, hey, Go pile all your clothes, every piece of clothing you own on your bed, and we'll see what a big mountain it makes. I might say, buzz off.、Um, on the other hand, well, these people have already solicited her advice, so they're not going to do that. But, but also, the fact that it's an interpreter, there's like a little bit of a,、uh, a membrane in between、uh, the client and the things that Marie Kondo, Marie Kondo is asking them to do. And she is asking them to do it, too. I think that's evident in the clip, and it's certainly part of her philosophy. She can't go in there and rearrange her stuff and Wave a magic wand, right? Her whole idea is she's got to get you to do things. Right. She expects you to do all that work. She doesn't have a list of,、uh, and some, some decluttering books do, she doesn't have a list of you should keep this kind of thing, you shouldn't keep this kind of thing.、Um, she really wants you to go with your own feelings. You can keep your old ratty t shirt if you can really say it makes you happy to hold it when you put it in your hands. You feel that kind of little buzz of happiness. She's not,、um, sh- she's not prescriptive in that way, she's not telling you what to keep. But it is your responsibility to engage with all the stuff that you own and think, how do I feel about this? 
she was, uh, as she points out in one of her books, uh, for I think five years or so as a young woman, a Shinto shrine maiden. Uh, there's a sense in which uh, Shinto animism is never entirely uh, far from absolutely so. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's sort of there. In fact, let's uh, Wolfie, let's just play A4. Uh, we'll maybe get a little sense of this. This is uh, called "Bless This House." Okay, so I'd love to greet your house first. <gasps> I love that. それから心の中でもう全く大丈夫なのであのこれからはコミュニケーションとザハウスイズザイウォー so when this happens, typically she uh, drops to her knees uh, and the people that she's helping drop to their knees, eyes are closed, and there is this little moment of thanking the house and blessing the house. There's also moments of thanking an individual T-shirt, which has served you well, but now is going to wherever T-shirts go after their T-shirts. Um, and and uh, I don't know, Linda, maybe react a little bit to this. Once again, there's sort of an imported ritual and wisdom that might be a little bit more attractive than the very pedestrian advice we could be getting from someone else. Well, again, I think her approach is just different. I think she is um, encouraging people to think about possessing things in a different way, to think about ownership in a different way. So her point is, um, I mean, a lot of this has, as you said, deep roots in animism, and it, it is very much a part of her philosophy. But also, even if you don't have roots in those beliefs, it can serve as a way to make you think about you should only own things that you really value, and you should value the things that you own. And so when she's thanking something like a T-shirt or what have you, um, I think what you're getting out of that, even if those aren't even if you weren't raised um, around those kind of principles, um, I think what you're getting out of that is you will have a happier life if you don't think of the things that you own as just um, disposable and unimportant because you will wind up filling your house with stuff that's not doing anything for you. So I think that it it for me, it encourages a different relationship to the to your possessions and your your spending and the things that you own um which is which to me is really valuable and which i and which i think is a nice aspect of this um for people who have struggled to get rid of of clutter so you know i, I was listening to your podcast about this uh, and people uh, on the podcast made several interesting points and, and it got me thinking about what the payoff is on this show and uh and and it's not just a show. Obviously, it is a couple of books and it's uh, philosophy and a lot of other things. But I mean, when you first started watching Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, well, the payoff was it was really a lot of fun. And, you know, the original one, Carson was really funny. And and there was just you were sort of keyed in on a particularly amusing and well played out uh, set of ideas. Uh, and some of the other ones, you get to see somebody get this fabulous, you know, house makeover or something like that. It's a little more subtle here. It's almost as though the real payoff is there, if there's going to be one it is not the magical thing that's happening on your TV screen. It's the thing you might actually consider doing. 
I think that's true. And that's always an element of any kind of self-help, self-improvement type of show. But I do think this is a show where um, it is, I think you're right, there's not a big reveal. It's not like a, a show where they renovate your house or build you a new room or redo your yard or something like that. It's a show where that that journey, if I can put it that way, that the people in the show are on, that the that, that usually it's a family or a couple um, in the show, that journey is a little bit more um, interior, I guess I would say. So you do see them, you know, make better use of their space. But what you really see are a lot of conversations between them about who's responsible for what and and uh, who is going to get rid of what and, and what are we going to do about our assets and the things that we own. And so I think um, you get more of that in this show than you would with something like a home renovation show. But you're right, you get less of the blam, here's the brand new house that we did in a week and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, uh, the, when you guys did your episode about this, uh, at least one of your panelists talked a little bit about the people on the show. Every time you watch any kind of show like this, you obviously are watching uh, the Transformer, whoever that might be, whether it's uh, uh, Marie Kondo or one of the many other hosts of these self-help shows. But you're also watching the potentially transformed and, and certainly watching this show, you know, there are moments, as one of your people pointed out, where you're thinking, you know, the problems that are going on in this house are not confined to an accumulation of books or the guy has like a really big baseball card collection. There's some other stuff going on here and right. maybe tidying is not going to cut it. Right. And I think I think you have to watch the show knowing that um, that people's people's possessions and their their stuff has emotional weight for them and when you talk to somebody about for example as i said you know things you own that that come from a certain time in your life things you own that uh, remind you of a hobby that you used to have that you don't have time for anymore those things have deep emotional value and particularly because in some of these couples and families they're, the the care and feeding of stuff, as it were, the cleaning up, the tidying, the knowing where everything is, those things are really emotionally weighty. And so you can't talk to people about the physical things that surround them without talking to them about other things. Who's responsible for making sure that if one of the kids doesn't know where their baseball pants are, you know, which parent is responsible for knowing where the baseball pants wound up because it's usually one parent taking more of that responsibility than the other. Actually, uh, with that in mind, let's hear A3. I think that uh, comes up right there. We all do cleaning. We all try to manage. Um... <clears throat> that doesn't clean. That doesn't do the bathroom. That doesn't do the kitchen. Not as much as you. That was okay. Yeah, okay. We okay. Do it hold way on. More. I'll say this: you guys <laughs> do do those areas more than me. But I do cleaning when you guys are asleep, picking up your backpacks, picking up your socks, picking up your shoes. Sweeping. <laughs> I like to think of that as straightening up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hear you. All right. So I mean, there is a way in which uh, old-fashioned sex rules 
uh, pop up here. I mean, everybody has their cross to bear. The people with the baseball, the guy has the baseball card collection, but I think that particular uh, wife was the one who had the biggest mountain of clothes that Marie yeah. Kondo had ever seen, uh, and she's seen a lot of mountains of clothes. So I don't know, maybe, Linda, can you talk a little bit about how, about how you see those questions playing out? Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of these uh, couples, you will see uh, that the woman in heterosexual couples often winds up being the one who um, does more of the um, the straightening and the clutter management, even in um, even in arrangements where both people work outside the home the same, essentially the same amount. Um, and so I, I think there is an effort sometimes to get at without you know, without being too overt about it, to kind of interrogate those expectations about who is responsible for your stuff. And one of the things that Marie Kondo uh, says to people is each person, particularly with sentimental items, each person is responsible for their own things. So nobody is going to go through all your old stuff except you because you have to be responsible for those decisions so that nobody else winds up with you saying, how could you possibly throw out my you know, my kindergarten stuffed bunny, you have to be responsible for that. And everybody has to to do their own stuff. Now, do I think that successfully happens in all of these couples and families? Absolutely not. Is it something that I think she understands? It is. And there have been people who have said, but it's always the wife who winds up cleaning the kitchen and the husband who winds up cleaning the garage. You don't often see how those decisions are made, but it may just be a matter of saying to the couple, which of you knows more about what's in the kitchen and which of you knows more about what's in the garage. So it's not a matter of her assigning it. It may just be a matter of the roles they already have. Linda Holmes, I think it's fair to say there's been a little bit of a backlash here. Some of it's occurred on social media. Some of it's occurred in in actual writings about this. But people, often people who surprise you, I mean, Barbara Ehrenreich comes to mind as somebody who's really had some pretty significant objections, not always charmingly worded, uh, to Marie Kondo, this notion, here's this person and she's going to come and she's going to make you get rid of books and, and kind of challenge your value system. And there's this kind of go away Marie Kondo thing that's that's happening, which is kind of surprising because she's only in your life by your invitation, typically. Mm-hmm. So what do you mm-hmm. see happening there? Well, I think that people, people about books are particularly, um, and I say this affectionately, particularly defensive about the ownership of physical books. And there are some people for whom a physical book is almost a, a religious object. And so to suggest that people should get rid of books, um, to suggest that people should throw out books, to suggest, as she sometimes does, that if there's a book that has only a couple of pages that are really meaningful to you, that you simply take them out of the book and get rid of the book and keep the pages that you like. Those are things that for a lot of people are um, extremely uncomfortable ideas. And it's important to remember, she doesn't have a rule that says, you have to throw out your books. She has a rule that says, or a suggestion that says, only keep the books that make you happy. And she does say, don't keep books because you think you're going to read them. If you've owned them for a long time, keep them if you enjoy looking at them. Keep you if, keep them if you enjoy being able to potentially give them to someone. But don't keep them because you think you're going to read them because past a certain point, it's very unlikely. And of course, you have people who disagree with that. Um but I, I, I think it's I think it's important to remember she's not as prescriptive as she's sometimes written about uh, as if she is. Yeah, I, I have several reactions to that. First of all, I should say 
I think I consider myself a Japanophile, and I certainly have been uh, to Japan and, and worshipped in Shinto shrines and and all that kind of stuff. And and you know there is if there is sort of a cultural marker here that's worth noting, there is within the Japanese culture a notion of impermanence, which exists somewhat differently than it does in the West. Uh, the notion that it's a floating world, that there nothing really uh, is is permanent. I think in the United States we often have this idea that these physical things that we have are forever and we're forever and our relationship with them is forever. And I don't know. I mean, I really like books a lot, but I sort of do regard books, the physical presence of books in my life as kind of the enemy. I've got to get them out. I got an awful lot of things sent to me. I've done things like I had a actual photocopied manuscript of a Don DeLillo novel. I love Don DeLillo. Somebody gave it to me for that reason. It was actually his manuscript with his pencil notations on it. I know. I got rid of it. It's okay. It's like yep. life keeps going. But yeah. yeah, go ahead. And I think if you're someone who hasn't always had a ton of space or who has moved a lot, you know, there's some people who have entire libraries in their houses and they're very, very proud of them. And that's a wonderful thing. But if you've always lived in really small spaces, if you've moved a lot, it can cost a lot to move books if you're moving them professionally. If you've moved around a lot, you may get to the point where you only keep the books that are the most important to you and books that other people would keep or books that you would keep if you had three rooms full of books, you may not wind up keeping. There are a lot of people, I am one of these people, who in many ways prefer electronic books because you don't have to carry the physical book around and because you don't have to accumulate that paper and that weight that you have to move from one place to another. So there are a ton of ways to love books and love reading. And, you know, as you mentioned in the intro, I say that as somebody who has written one, it's you you got to love reading in whatever way you love reading. Right. I've written several books and it hasn't made me love physical books more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think you can have a, I mean, I don't know. One of the things, Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer with whom you have been dealing, uh-huh. is a great believer in going, I, I'm holding a library book copy of The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo because she believes Betsy Kaplan's religion is that the libraries are there and they actually do store the books for you. Mm-hmm. When you want them, you go get one. Great point. <laughs> it really is an alternative to having to own things all the time. Well, so I guess maybe my last question is, I mean, how enduring is this? This is the Marie Kondo craze has been around for a little while. The Netflix thing really has kind of ignited it, you know, in the last few months in particular. Um, uh, Is Marie Kondo just going to be sort of part of our lives forever or will we move on to a a different uh, guru? I think this will last um, a little bit longer than maybe people give it credit for. I do think there are a lot of people who have um, who have learned a lot from listening to her and from reading her stuff. I think the expression spark joy as a kind of both a thing people really talk about and a kind of a funny uh, a funny thing that that is a punchline sometimes in in jokes about culture or whatever. Um, I think that'll be around for a long time. I don't think this is going to be a super quick fade, especially since, as you say, she she wrote these books a few years ago, and and it's it's been a pretty durable thing. Right. The first book, I should say, is very Japanese. I mean, it really was, I think, written in a time when she was working in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see quite a bit of their relationship to some of these questions being slightly different from ours. Well, Linda Holmes, great to talk to you, host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. Her first novel, Evie Drake Starts Over, which you can buy and enjoy and then uh, maybe get rid of. Who knows? Uh, it's about love, sad things, baseball, and the state of Maine. It'll be published this June, so you don't have to deal with its physicality for a few months. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Thanks for joining us, Linda. Thank you so much. 
All right, we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to find, we're going to meet somebody who is a professional organizer and certified KonMari consultant, somebody who is living the life that we're talking about here. Netflix documentary about Marie Kondo. She is now legendary. She says throw it out if it doesn't bring you joy. Apparently there's lots of things that do not bring her joy. Now half my shit is gone. She smiles at me and just says sorry. But you just got married. To me it's kind of All right, we're back. This entire show is about the phenomenon uh, of Marie Kondo and the ideas that she has uh, attempted to spread uh, through her books uh, and through her uh, television show on Netflix. Uh, Joining us now is somebody who, as I said before, is living the life, practicing the practice uh, and doing it as a career. Uh, That is Kristen Ivey, uh, uh, who is a professional organizer and certified KonMari consultant based in Chicago. She's the owner of for the love of tidy and co-host of the weekly podcast Spark Joy. Spark Joy. I actually, I, I'm not sure that in our entire conversation with Linda Holmes, we really pinned down that Spark Joy thing. So maybe that's how we start with you, Kristen. Um, this phrase Spark Joy is one that's used uh, over and over uh, in, by Marie Kondo herself. What does that mean? What does it mean to you? Sure, Colin, and thank you for having me sure. and start there. Great place to start, joy, right? Uh, so, spark joy means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and that's what makes the term so special. It's a very simple phrase, but it's harder to execute in terms of applying it to what it means for your possessions and your life. Uh, it actually came from the Japanese term tokimiku, which actually means to prosper, to thrive, to be powerful. And then when it was translated into English, there was a lot of different phrases that were thrown around. Does it brighten your day? Does it give you joy? Does it bring you joy? Um, and then the translator landed on spark joy. But really, it's just a place to start. So it, what, it's all about what uh, brings you happiness, lights you up. For me, I actually equated the word love with joy, because when I was tidying, I would just hold something. And if I said, oh, I love this, this is staying, then I knew that it was something I wanted to keep around. So everyone has a different interpretation of the word, the term. So, Kristen, let's talk a little bit about your own story. So you had a different career. uh, And uh, I guess one of the ways that you tidied up your life was getting rid of that career and replacing it with this. Talk about uh, the transformation that you made. Sure. So for 14 years, I graduated from engineering school and went right into being a government contractor and project manager. And I also dabbled a little bit in interior design. I went and got an undergraduate degree because I thought I was going to shift into design as well. Um, But I just found myself kind of stuck. Um, There were so many things that I learned from 14 years in corporate America, um, but I just got to a point where I wasn't feeling like I was making an impact or inspiring uh, people or seeing real change. Uh, And that's where I met my things at that weird crossroads moment in my life. And I started to immediately apply apply the principles that I read in the life-changing magic of tidying up to my closet. And I found $300 worth of tagged clothes that didn't spark joy. So instead of just running out and buying a container or labeling these clothes that were hanging around, I asked myself, why? Why was I mindlessly shopping? Why did I have so much excess? 
And I realized that it was a way for me to check out and cope with the fact that I wasn't really doing what I wanted to do when it came to my career. And I just was feeling bad about decisions I was making and had a lot of anxiety around that. So I just continued to declutter and each clutter category taught me a new lesson about myself. And I married uh, my way to uh, the first training that uh, the Marie Kondo's organization ever had because I knew that was the right path for me. So this is a pretty elaborate process. This isn't like you show up for a couple of days at, uh, you know, some rented hotel space or something, right? You, you have to do quite a bit to get certified. Oh, yes. Uh, the first step is really getting tidy yourself. So you have to walk into this feeling like you were able to apply this method on your own things. And that's part of the application. And then once you are entered into training, you do sit through a seminar that typically lasts about a weekend. And it's highly condensed uh, technical material about how to implement the method as well as how to apply this in different client situations. And then you move on to actually taking that knowledge back to your town and applying it for at least 50 hours on the ground with practice clients. And then you have to go through the next layer, which is an exam with uh, Kamari's organization. And then you're officially approved and certified. So now, uh, let's say that I live in the Chicago area, I reach out to you. Uh, When you show up in my abode, this is... What begins then is a pretty hard, I don't know, pretty physically complicated process, which involves getting me in touch with all of my possessions. And I probably have a lot more possessions than I think I do. (laughs) Yes, don't we all? Uh, We all struggle with clutter somewhere in our lives. That's what's made this conversation so popular and relatable for everyone. Um, And really where we start is actually not with the objects themselves. When I meet with my clients, it's mandatory for me to understand where they are and where they're trying to go. Um, So we actually start with that often skipped step, which is to establish your ideal lifestyle and your ideal living environment, that vision of where you want to go. So that vision material starts to shape that larger question that people have a little bit trouble answering, does it spark joy? Um, We ground that big question with how do these things move you forward towards the goals that you want to achieve. And then after we get set on that, I start to actively tidy with my clients and apply the method in a way that's really customized to them, um, starting with clothing and then moving through to other uh, categories on separate appointments like books and papers and miscellaneous items and sentimental so, you know, I want to go back to what you said before, because I, because I think it's important. And I think it's actually a thing that we typically skip all, all over the place, not just in our mm-hmm. approach to tidying up, which is examining what our value set really is. I think it's almost a question that we like to dodge uh, in our society here. You know, I mentioned earlier an episode of the Marie Kondo show that involved a guy with a big baseball card c- collection and a woman who had the biggest clothing pile that Marie Kondo had ever seen. Let's just hear a little clip from this when it really sort of gets down to what's really going on here. Ron's reaction to the thought of going into this project was like, I guess what most men would, like, what's wrong with the way things are right now, you know? If it isn't broke, don't fix it. (laughs) But now he's enjoying it. I think since Marie's come here from the beginning Mm. to now, we're totally, we look at this differently. Spark Joy, that really is a 
a real thing. It actually brought about changes that we really didn't expect. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's true. Honto. 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 There actually is a side bonus to all of this. And the side bonus is that um, we're working together. It's kind of fun, actually. So, Kristen Ivey, I mean, this is, I mean, at the beginning of that, you hear, I think, something that's really true of a lot of us, which is stasis is usually a little bit more attractive than change, at least when you first begin to think about it. Why not keep things more or less as they are with the kind of vague promise to yourself that you'll keep gradually making them a little bit better? Whether you do that or not is a separate question. But so getting people to, I guess by the time people contact you, at least one of them has decided that change is, is necessary? I, usually people contact me in a moment of transition in their life or just at a moment where they feel like they just can't take it anymore. There's too much stuff. There's too much anxiety. There's too much stress. And they can't figure out where to start or how to think about this as a comprehensive event rather than you know, just waking up one morning and micro-organizing a garage space or just one drawer where there might be three pens with three, oh, I have three pens, I might need more, right? Uh, instead of, um, or rather than collecting all the pens throughout the entire house together and confronting clutter in a way that might be a little bit uncomfortable but can actually yield you shifting to a mindset of abundance and redefining what enough really means based on how that aligns with your values. Now, I'm guessing that uh, growing up in Chicago or wherever you grew up, you weren't a Shinto shrine maiden for five years. So how do you incorporate that part of Marie Kondo's persona? There's a ritualistic aspect to what we see her do on the show, whether it's kneeling to greet the house or uh, saying thank you to individual objects. Is that part of what you do? It is part of what I do. I really do respect the cultural context of this method, and I love to infuse that and to really share it with my clients and figure out how they can adopt it in a way that makes sense for them based on their principles and their values. So, for example, the sinking of the house, all it is is really getting to that root of Kamari that's all about respect, gratitude, and joy. So I have my clients just take a moment of mindfulness and we just kneel and some of my clients may bless their home in that time. Some of my clients just sit in silence or meditate. Some even tear up a bit when they are just taking a moment to recognize and appreciate their space, not necessarily the clutter that's causing them you know, stress, but really shift their attention to the positive side of things and that they do have their basic needs met and there are certain aspects of their home that they love. So, you know, I was asking Linda Holmes about what appears to be occasionally a backlash. There are people who seem almost a little bit afraid of either Marie Kondo or of this method. And some of the fear does seem to involve, oh, I will fall under its spell temporarily and I'll get rid of all kinds of things that ultimately I'll wind up wishing I had retained, uh, which is not a surprising psychological reaction to all this. How do you deal with that question? Yeah. I like to remind people that the beauty of this method is it's not about what's leaving. It's really about what's staying. So it's shifting you to giving yourself permission to keep whatever you want to with confidence. So if you have a collection of nutcrackers or a baseball collection or a large number of clothes, I myself have 58 pairs of shoes, which I absolutely love and which spark joy. I kept them with confidence because it's a high joy factor for me. 
So I love to remind my clients of that so they don't get caught up in regret uh, and that you know fear of the unknown or the someday in the future that they're trying to predict that it's, you know, all we can do is make the best decision with the resources and the data that we have in the present moment, all framed by our goals and our values. So we can technically say everything sparks joy, right? Uh, but <laughs> technically, we have to put some boundaries around that. So that's my job to help my clients also marry that joy with the boundaries of their space so that there's still not any tension there or clutter created by you know shoving things in drawers or overstuffing a closet um, where we have to create home harmony in order to make this really work. Uh, Kristen Ivey, so great to talk to you. Professional organizer, certified KonMari consultant, based in Chicago, author, uh, excuse me, the owner of For the Love of Tidy and co-host of the weekly podcast, Spark Joy. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you, Colin. Have a great day. All right. And we are going to finish the show. We're going to take a break right now, but we're going to finish the show with two people who have uh, attempted to have tried out the KonMari method in their own lives. Let's find out how that went. And now she's folding all our shirts a really weird way She did one drawer, but yeah, it took the whole day She said before she throws something away, she has to thank it So she's sitting by the garbage and she's talking to a blanket The kids are wondering where the toys are And mama says, sorry But you just got con We'll see you later, little Barbie All right, we're back. I forgot to write any uh, credits for Kion Wolf to deliver, so I will say that Kion Wolf is right now running the board here in the studio. The show itself was uh, produced by uh, our senior producer uh, Betsy Kaplan. Uh, the part of when the part of Bill Curry was played by a giant dust bunny. Uh, tomorrow we are going to um, talk to Jessica Harper. Jessica Harper is a, a pretty well-known actress from Stardust Memories, My Favorite Year, Suspiria, but she also has a very unusual story to tell about her family. And She's decided to tell it in the form of a podcast memoir, which is actually, although podcasts are really booming right now, we're going to tell you a little bit more about what's going on in the podcast industry. That's another part of tomorrow's show. But, I, you know, I haven't heard a lot of memoirs quite like this one. So, anyway, Jessica will be joining us, and we'll also be talking to uh, Nicholas Qua, who knows more about the podcasting industry than probably any living human being. Uh, all right, so I promised you that we would be talking to uh, two people who had attempted to implement some of these Colin-Marie ideas in their own lives. Joining us right now is Jasmine Bagger-Cruz, Saudi journalist based in New York, who writes primarily about arts and culture in the Middle East, particularly Saudi Arabia. And she tried the Colin-Marie method, as did Imani uh, Klenitz, uh, founder uh, and uh, blogs for the, um, or she founded and blogs for the Glorious Globe, a blog to encourage people, especially women of color, to see more of the world. Prior to that, she was an account manager for the Carolina Panthers. Uh, all right. So uh, both of you have uh, tried this. Jasmine, I will ask you to go first. Uh, give us, uh, give me just sort of, I guess, maybe a thumbnail description of of how you came to, to try out the ideas of Marie Kondo and what happened when you did. Hi, Colin and everyone listening. Um, so I did try it and about 2015, I was in a bookstore and I saw her book there, and it says on the cover, Life-Changing Method. And I'm a journalist, so I'm very reluctant whenever people have these like magic potions and things like that. So I thought, let me just open the first page and see. And I read it cover to cover while standing on that book, you know, just that 
right there. And I thought, oh, my God, it is life-changing. And I went home. I took everything out of my closet. I live in New York City in a shoebox apartment. And um, I put everything in, you know, in the center of the room, which is what she recommends. And then I started sorting. And I got exhausted. And then I had to go to sleep. <laughs> so I had to move everything from the bed to the table. And then the next day I had work. And so every day I just kept moving this pile back and forth. And I don't know about you, but if I have two days off, I'm not going to sit there and sift through this. So um, I made my own modified method and um, I play a little game. And so every day I take three items out with me when I leave my apartment and um, I spread those things out um, in different ways. And we could talk a little bit more about that if you'd like. Well, yeah, quickly before we go to Imani, yeah, what do you mean by different ways? So, um, so this is a little thing that I've started doing um, for the last couple of years is every day I leave my apartment, I take three items with me. And it could be anything. It could be a big thing. It could be a small thing. And there's, there are three reasons that I do it. First, um, to spread joy, um, to kind of leave these little gifts out um, into the city. You know, New York City is a tough town. And so we need any joy we can get. So I would leave like a keychain, uh, carefully curated in a specific place at a cafe, and someone would find it, and I see their face light up, and they think it's from just a gift from the city, but it's something I left. Uh, I just need to be mindful. I'm not littering. I'm just trying to spread joy. Um, another thing is for me not to be a guest on the show hoarders. Um, I don't want to accumulate things, get attached to anything. And third, it's to give it a re- repurpose something. You know, these, these items, they've just been sitting here collecting dust. So it's just giving it new life. So that's what I do. So already we've um, sort of wandered into an area of orthodoxy versus heterodoxy, because everything you're talking about is essentially heresy, uh, <laughs> if we follow strictly to the to the scripture itself, uh, the life-changing magic of tidying up. Uh, so let's go yeah. over to Amani and find out uh, what kind of spin she's putting on all this. So Amani, maybe you could do the same thing. Uh, just kind of give me the, the thumbnail of your uh, attraction to and involvement with this method. So I think I first heard about the life-changing magic of tidying up in a Today Show article or on the broadcast, and I'd gone through various rounds of trying to do deep cleans of my apartment and you just kind of go through the cycle of cleaning and clutter. And so this seemed like a way to just kind of handle it all at once. Um, so I, I bought the book, I went through it and it took me about a month to go through the whole process um, from start to finish. Um, but I was really glad that I did instead of just continually buying storage containers, just um, only keeping the things that were really important to me. And so did, did you, in fact, so we know from Jasmine that she sort of did violate one of the premises of Marie Kondo, which is you do it all at once. You, you have to do everything yeah. all at once. You can't do a little bit every day. That's not going to work. You have to have almost this funerary pyre where, you know, you, you cleanse yourself of all this stuff. So, Imani, how, how about you? Did you stick a little bit more closely to that plan? Yeah, I did. And I mean, you can't, it's, it's a process that takes a really long time. So you can't just do it in one day. Um, so like I said, it took me over a month to do it. And I understand what Jasmine was saying about the stuff because I had everything that I owned in a pile in my living room for a month, which wasn't the best. But, you know, once I got through it, it was nice to see that actually everything that I now own could just fit 
in this little pile in my living room, and it wasn't just all-consuming. So so now I'm hearing some commonality a little bit here, because Jasmine, it sounds like Amani's saying a similar thing, which is, you know, you watch the TV show and people, they just probably seem to be setting aside an awful lot of unencumbered time to yeah. work with Marie Kondo. But the reality is we tend, well, I think you said if you have two free days, this is not what you're doing with them. Yeah. I don't know about you, but you know, it's hard. I don't have a whole team of experts helping me and... um I, I live a very busy, fast-paced lifestyle in New York, and so it's just not a practical thing. Um, I love the idea of, you know, having a, every item has its place and just having that joy kind of and gratitude. Um, I like that, and I, I sort of, I'm a, you know, like I said, it changed my life in the way that, you know, you only keep what you really love um, or everything that's useful, you know, but... I I just I I couldn't I couldn't do it in that way. It's just not practical for um, apartment living, I, I think, or studio living, um, in this kind of context. In, in my current lifestyle, um, I just don't have the the time to to do it that way. So I would love to at some point. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. So, Jasmine, even though you are a heretic, you've kind of started your own religion, which involves this process of three things a day. And it sounds like, if I'm reading your tone of voice correctly, this does give you joy, this notion. It does. That, yeah. It does. I really I really love it. Um, it. It gives me a sense of purpose also. When I leave my apartment, I have to consciously take three tangible items with me. And the purpose is to spread it out and, you know, not to be attached to anything. It's really important to me. And also just a little game that I play with the city um, where people kind of look at these items and they think it's, it's left for them. Um, and it, it just gives me joy to kind of have that little game with the city. I, I bet you there's security cameras, security guards watching me and being like, okay, what is she doing now? But, I mean, it's New York City. They've probably seen weirder things. Yeah, I don't think somebody leaving a keychain where somebody can get it is really going to register on the New York City scale. That's not going to really <laughs> move the needle. So, uh, Imani, give me a sense of where you're at right now. So you had the pile of clothes on the floor for a month. Um, I don't know. How has it all played out for you? So, I mean, the book is called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, and it, it really did change my life. So, like I said, it took me over a month to go through everything. And then a few months later, I decided that it was time for me to make some big changes in my life. So I decided to hit a career pause and left my job. I went backpacking abroad for a while, started a travel blog, and then I moved to New York City a few months ago. So I'm not even living in the same place anymore. Um, so I feel like doing this process really sparked that because I felt like I wasn't weighed down by all the stuff that I had, and I, I felt like physically more mobile. Right. You know, it is kind of interesting. I mean, uh, earlier on, I was talking about the Japanese notion of impermanence. And I think the more things that we have, the more permanent our situation seems. Uh, it's a little bit there in uh, Kundra's The Incredible Lightness of Being to that notion of just, you know, getting yourself in, into a state where you can make decisions like that. But so and you're saying that ultimately, although it wasn't a clear one to one perception, you ultimately realized that the stuff that you had was almost literally weighing you down yeah and I realized you know I don't have to have this apartment and all this space just for my stuff you know I, I could I could move on I didn't have to have like all these square feet to, to hold these things 
Right. And then, yeah, obviously, the more stuff you have, the more space you need uh, to have it in. Mm-hmm. So so right. how, how about you, uh, Jasmine? At this point, do you feel as though your life itself, you have this enjoyable three-thing-a-day ritual that you're doing, and I assume that also means that uh, your your environment is getting less cluttered unless you're actually also acquiring three things every day. So I don't know. Where are you heading now? How, how do you feel uh, your life is changing, if at all? It, I think it it does creating a whole uh, other um, unexpected little thing. Um, when I speak to my friends, they know about my little method. So they actually tell me, oh, you know what? You'd be proud of me today. I gave away three items. I gave away three shoes, pairs of shoes and or whatever. And so it creates this whole other dialogue, which I didn't anticipate when I started this method. It was just me just creating a modified KonMari method on my own terms that fit my own lifestyle. But now everyone seems to be coming to me and telling me like, oh, I gave away these things today and I cleared this section of my house. And so it it, it actually is it's really positive because when I speak to my friends now, we don't just talk about politics or news or whatever. We talk about how we decluttered things and how we got rid of things. And you do feel like I, I don't want to get to the end of my days and I'm just surrounded by stuff. I want to be surrounded by experiences and, you know, just not be weighed down Sounds, by everything that I have. Sounds good to me. Um, we're going to have to stop there, but uh, Jasmine Bagger, Saudi journalist based in New York, Amani Clements, uh, founded in Blogs for the Glorious Globe. Uh, check out that blog. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today, and congratulations. It sounds like, uh, Jasmine, you're getting disciples. You know, religions start this way. You know, they start with just like, you know, one person doing things and then other people flock to the standard. All right, well, uh, I guess I didn't even really have time to tell my incredibly wounding story, which I will now quickly tell, which is that I, inspired by all this, uh, folded all my T-shirts up using the uh, Marie Kondo method, I thought. And then I was so proud of myself, I texted a picture to Betsy Kaplan, the senior producer of the show, and she told me that I had done it wrong, and she didn't support me emotionally at all. She didn't... She didn't validate what I was trying to do. It was really hard, too, and I had to get rid of a whole bunch of T-shirts. I'll be back tomorrow.